Mark chapter 13. We'll be working through the first 23 verses for this morning. This is the most controversial text, I think, in the entire Gospel of Mark. Um, Some may argue that the closing of the Gospel of Mark, where there's debate about um, manuscripts and so on, could be very controversial. But this particular text, dealing with eschatology and um, thoughts about what's meant by this text, has um, brought about no small amount of commentaries and debates. And I can tell you that in the last several months, I probably studied more on this issue because of the book of Daniel that I've been doing in the Bible study which actually connects to this and Revelation um, than I've done in most other areas probably in in the last several years because I really wanted to be well prepared to address this particular text as I know that there are differences of opinion on it. And so my desire is to work through it with you and to stay as closely to the text as possible and to let the text say what it says uh, and to seek to apply it and Lord willing, we'll see some good things come out of it because this is for us before we move on. So we'll spend at least three weeks, I believe, on this particular text, this whole chapter. So let's look at the first 23 verses of Mark chapter 13. We're told, and as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher. What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days." And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. 
For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Let's pray. Father, as we look into this text, we know that there are different kinds of opinions as to how these things were fulfilled or are to be fulfilled, and we just pray that you would give us grace, Lord, while to, we ought to respect, of course, different opinions, to look at the text in its context and to seek to unravel what is said here, and especially the purpose of it. What, what is the reason we are told these things to apply it? For we know that while there are many different applications, uh, different ways in which people may try to interpret this text, the primary application is universal in scope. So please, Father, bless our time, make it productive, grant us your spirit, and be with us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last time we considered, in preparation for the new year, we had diverted away from the Gospel of Mark for the last four weeks. We talked about the coming of Christ and the first advent for three weeks, and then last week we talked about the final coming of Christ in preparation for the new year. And we found the Apostle Paul exhorting the Thessalonians, and of course us and all peoples through the Thessalonians who would read the Scriptures, to be ready for that day, so that unlike the rest of the world, we're not taken by surprise. We don't have to be taken by surprise when the Lord returns. We have to be ready for that day, the day of the Lord, daily living our lives in light of it. Well, as we return now to the Gospel of Mark, we find ourselves now entering chapter 13, which addresses the coming of the Son of Man. And as we seek to unravel this highly controversial chapter, and as we seek to walk closely to the text, letting the scriptures say what they say and mean, and let the chips fall where they may, as we let them say what they say and mean, we will seek to identify what this coming of the Son of Man is as described in this text. Now we'll get into that more next week, but we're going to seek to understand what is this coming of the Son of Man spoken about here in this text and how does it relate to the final coming of Christ, if it relates to it at all? Whatever the case may be, it has great relevance for us, or else we know that it would not be given to us in the God-breathed scriptures. That said, we will seek to break this chapter down into three parts. So there are three messages that I will commit to this sermon, beginning this morning by considering the first 23 verses, which contain the, what I call the lead-in, the lead-in to the coming of the Son of Man, which is described then in the verses that follow. We'll get into that more next week. But this is the lead-in to the coming of the Son of Man as described in this chapter. And so first, though, I want you to look with me a little bit at the context, because I think if we think about the context, it will help understand or help us unlock what this text is actually saying. Oftentimes, we just run with different ways of trying to interpret something, and we leave the context and we get into trouble, but the context is key. And so as we seek to unlock the meaning of this chapter, it's extremely important that we take a few moments to look at the context within which the Lord gives this discourse. And we're given the context in verses 1 through 4. Very important. And this is, by the way, something to do when you're reading a parable. Oftentimes, when you try to unlock a parable, it's helpful to read the surrounding context, and that will help provide the key to opening the parable. Not all the time, but many times that's the case. 
Verses 1 through 4. And as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And so in context, we find that as the Lord and his disciples are coming out of the temple, one of the disciples brings the beauty and the splendor and the wonder of the temple, the wonder of its design to the Lord's attention, seeing if he is as impressed with the architecture as this disciple is. In response then to the disciple, the Lord says something quite shocking and mind-blowing. So this disciple is impressed. Look at the large stones, how beautiful it is, how great this temple is. And he's expecting the Lord to say, wow, yeah, like you're staring at the Grand Canyon, right? Something beautiful and amazing. Wow, yeah, great piece of architecture. But in response to the disciple, the Lord says something quite shocking. Putting at, uh, pointing at the large grouping of buildings, so he's pointing at the same building now, uh, the buildings, the temple buildings, and the large beautiful stones, these ornate stones, he tells them that they will all be torn down so that not one stone will be left upon another. The wonderful, elaborate buildings and the glorious, elaborate stones which brought awe to this disciple, would ultimately be destroyed and be leveled, he says. Now these comments obviously struck all of the disciples, because later on, when they walk across to the Mount of Olives, across from the temple, you could see the temple from the Mount of Olives. It's not too far away from it, and so you could view it. And the Lord's sitting down with his disciples, and four of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, they come to the Lord and they privately ask him concerning what he had said about the temple. So this is obviously on their minds. And so they go to him and they ask him. And it is in response to these questions that the Lord states all that he says in the remainder of this chapter. So important for context. He's responding to these questions. And so when we work through the chapter, it is important that we recall both the immediate context involving our Lord's statements about the coming destruction of the temple, and the three questions. Now, there are two questions we see here, but we find that in Matthew's parallel account, there's a third question that's also asked. And so it's important for us to consider those questions that were asked at the Mount of Olives, as well as the context of them having left the temple as we seek to unfold what's being said here and how we are to understand it. And so what then are the three questions which bring about our Lord's lengthy response? What questions uh, is he responding to? In verses 3 and 4, we're given two of them here in Mark's Gospel. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And then the third question is revealed in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. We're told there, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives, disciples, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be. 
And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. So you have three parts there that are coming out to be answered in this text. And so as we seek to unlock this chapter, having the temple in view and in mind, it will be very helpful for us to categorize the whole of our Lord's response in such a way that it would serve to answer those three questions. So many people want to run with interpretations and this is talking about the end of the world and Russia and China and this and, and, and bring it to our context and steal it from its meaning for those folks in that day and completely neglect to think about the questions that were asked and the context which should help us unlock what he is saying here. And so the three questions are, when will these things, that is, when will the utter destroying and the leveling of the temple buildings take place? Question number one. He just said that there will not be one stone upon another. Lord, when will these things take place? First question. And then, what signs should we look for indicating that you are coming to accomplish this or you're coming to accomplish this is about to take place? When will it take place, these things? And what kind of signs should we look for to know that you're about to come and do this to this temple? Now remember, they don't understand even still that the Lord has to die, that he's going to ascend to heaven. They don't know. They know that at some point he's going to reign as king. They think it's going to be in Jerusalem. So they know at some point he's going to come in and do this. So the question is, what sign do we look for when you're going to come and do this to the temple? And then thirdly, taking from Matthew's account... What will be the sign of the end of the age? That's a third question. What will be the sign of the end of the age? Well, for this morning, we'll be focusing primarily on the Lord's response to the first two questions. And we'll tap into those questions going forward as well. But we're not going to get to the third question just yet. But we'll look at the first two questions to some extent in keeping with the remainder of our text. Um, we will then go beyond 23 next time. But up to 23... We will look at the first two questions for this morning. There's a lot of information for me to give you here in, in preparation to unlock this whole chapter. So please bear with me. But I think it will be very helpful to us. And as we apply it, I think it will greatly benefit us as well. So the question then, the first question is, when will these things, that is, when will the destroying and the complete leveling of the temple, such that one stone upon another um, will not be left upon another, when will these things take place? Right, verses 5 to 13 begins to address that. Now, as the Lord prepares to provide his disciples with the warning signs that lead to the destruction of the temple, first he cautions them. He begins by warning them not to be led astray by other events that will take place throughout the course of the time prior to it. So at the beginning, and so many people get caught up in these beginning portions, and they're looking for these signs, or, and they're focusing on them, and he's saying, look, these are things to be warned about that are not indications that the time is now here, but they will ultimately lead up to it. So these are kind of the pre-early warnings, in a sense. In other words, he's going to summarize the type of things they can expect to witness going forward, which are not immediate indications of the arrival of his coming judgment, but rather early tremors, as it were, pointing toward a later inevitable destruction. So these are the early tremors. In fact, he calls them the beginning of birth pains to emphasize 
that they are to be distinguished from the hard labor and the actual birth that follow. These are just the beginning of birth pains. Notice in verses 5 through 8 then. Jesus began to say to them, we're told, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So that's the, the warning he gives. Don't get swept away with everyone else when these things happen. Because they're just the beginning of birth pains. And so, as confirmed by the historical accounting of Josephus and others, if you've not read Josephus, he has large, uh, just throughout the history of the Jews, just a lot of helpful information. It's not scripture. I'm not saying it's perfect. But all the way from the early church fathers on, everybody has saw his accounting at least as credible, at least for the time that he lived, which is when these things took place. Josephus was an eyewitness to these things. And so he's very respectable in that sense. And other historical documents as well would confirm that prior to the Jewish war with the Romans, leading up to that, prior to the ultimate destruction of the temple in AD 70, there were no small amount of alleged messiahs who had come upon the scene, especially following the ascension of Christ. So he even, and he wasn't a Christian, Josephus. He was a Jewish commander of the army. He was defending Galilee when Nero had Vespasian come in to fight against the Jews. And ultimately, Nero dies later on. But he was a commander. He got captured by the Romans. So he was a first-hand uh, man who gave a first-hand account. But he wasn't a Christian. And even he said there were so many people who were claiming to be messiahs throughout that time period in history. And especially during the time when Nero began to reign, AD 54. For the time of Nero onward, there was tension with the Jews. Nero was a man who was caught up in his sport. He loved to play his instruments. He loved to play in the, the Olympics. And so there was a time when the Jews were beginning to create an uproar, especially because the governor who was over them at the time was taxing them to no end. So there began to be people wanting to claim to be the Messiah so that they could lead the Jews at some point against the Romans. So there were a lot of claims to Messiah's coming. Self-proclaimed messiahs had attempted to draw the people to themselves so that they could secure power among the Jews, especially when a rebellion against the Romans had become more and more inevitable. It became inevitable as time went on that there was going to be a rebellion against Rome. And so people began to claim to be a messiah or the messiah. And of course, there were earthquakes. There are recorded accounts of earthquakes that took place during that time. There were, of course, all kinds of wars. Rome was constantly, constantly seeking to subject territories that were trying to rebel against Rome. All kinds of wars all throughout Israel when the, when the rebellion started to take place. Up in Galilee and all different towns in Israel as they went started to confront the Romans. And there were rumors of wars throughout all of the Roman Empire during that time period. That was a very common thing that was happening before AD 70. And so the apostles, Jesus is telling them, that they were to avoid getting swept away by the rumors, by the claims, and even by the events that were taking place, so that they would not be deceived with the rest of the nation, which was being prepared for destruction. They were not to be blind like everyone else. 
They were to be alert. They were to be faithful. They weren't to be thinking like many people today think about end times, right? Everything is end times. And, oh, we got to watch what's going on with Israel. We got to watch what's going on with Russia and China. And we got to watch Ukraine. And we got to see what's going on over here. Oh, this is going on here. And everybody becomes, well, let's do this. Let's make this change. Meanwhile, the Bible tells us we should be living the same and consistently throughout all of history. We don't have to prepare for that. We just need to live the way we're supposed to be living. And that's how we're prepared. Well, in the same way, the Lord's saying, don't get swept away by all that madness. Just stay focused. You're going to have people claiming to be the Christ. You're going to have all these wars. People are going to try to swing you into them and to lead you away from focusing on my kingdom. And so he says, don't let that get to you. They were not to be alarmed by those common events which would arise at various times up to AD 70, the destruction of the temple. They would see those things happening. Moving on then, the Lord adds these words. He says, but be on your guard. These are very much words to those disciples. Where are they? Be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Right? Think about this as you read that statement. Where was the gospel being proclaimed up to this point? Sometimes we forget that. It's only beginning in Israel, right? In Jerusalem. And so when he says all nations, he means it's got to go out to all the Gentile nations for the first time. This is something that's traumatic. This is something that's... That, uh, that's um, it's radical to them. It must be proclaimed to all nations. You've got to imagine the impact for them to hear that from the Lord Jesus Christ. It must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father is child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But one, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now it's important to realize, again, that this entire section, in keeping with the context and the questions of the apostles, is not speaking about things that Christians will face at the end of the world. Now, we may face these kinds of things at the end of the world. I'm not saying we won't. But that's not what this text is speaking about. This is speaking about things that would happen specifically to these very disciples and the Christians of that day. What they would go through, the Christians of the first generation, Prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, they would go through these kinds of trials and persecutions. And you see, in fact, don't we, these very things beginning to take place right after the Lord's ascension in the book of Acts. We haven't even had some recorded evidence of this happening in the book of Acts, let alone all else that happens even beyond the book of Acts. The apostles, were they not delivered over to councils? Weren't they beaten in synagogues? They were whipped and they rejoiced in the Lord that they were able to suffer for his name. Some of them stood before governors and kings for the sake of Christ. Early on, they were whipped by the Sanhedrin. Early on, James, the apostle, was put to death by King Herod. Peter was arrested by Herod and he was being prepared to be put to death until the angels miraculously let him out um, so that he would be spared. The Apostle Paul stood before all manner of governors and kings and authorities. 
in that time. And beyond the time of the book of Acts, most, if not all of these men, as well as many other Christians, had experienced all these types of persecutions with most of them leading to martyrdom, most of them being killed. That happened in their day. And I feel bad because in our day, we rob what these people went through so that the gospel could get to us by wresting it out of its context and saying, this is something that's going to happen later on. And again, we, we know that the ends will be rough. We know there will be persecution and trials. But this has meaning for the apostles first. It's for what they went through. And that's what this is addressing in this section. Many stood trial and were forced to give testimony without preparation. We see that with the Apostle Paul. All manner of Christians were abandoned, disowned, and betrayed by their own unconverted family members because of their faith and their commitment to Christ. Do you know what it was like to be a Jew committed to Judaism and the rabbis of the day and then to have a family member convert to Christ while the rest of the family is very anti-Christ? And what did the Jews do? They disowned their family members. They had them stoned. They had them put to death. Or they kicked them out of their homes. Not unlike what we see happen with Muslims today in some countries. What they do to their family members if they convert to Christianity. That went on in that day. Contrary to the view and thinking of many folks in our day today. The gospel did spread to the ends of the earth in that day. We have this thing, well, the gospel's got to get out in every single language, and we need to do that, and I think that's important. But they take this text and they say, well, look, when that happens, the Lord will return as if we're the ones who initiate that return. That's not what he's talking about. The gospel did spread to the Gentile nations. That's what this text is talking about. In that day, not only were many nations represented during the time that the miraculous events had taken place at Pentecost, look at all the nations represented there, but the Apostle Paul and many others who traveled from nation to nation, Silas and Barnabas and Mark, and you can go on and uh, look at all the other people that Paul interacts with in the book of Acts who are traveling all around, Priscilla and Aquila uh, and so on. They had spread the gospel far and wide and it only traveled further by those who received it from them. It went all over the world. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1, Verses 21 to 23, Paul states these words. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now listen closely. That you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul's saying the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation in heaven. Now, he's maybe using superlative terms to some extent, but he's saying that it went to all the nations. It went out to all the Gentile nations. That was fulfilled before AD 70. All of the things mentioned in these verses have happened during the time of the apostles. They were hated by all for the sake of Christ. And the Lord tells them all of this. And this is the key. This is what's missed today in all the end times madness. And misapplying these texts. He's exhorting them to persevere through it all. 
to persevere. There is a way to obey and to be prepared, not by knowing all of the ins and outs and details of what's being fulfilled and not being fulfilled. The point is not to know all that. It's to be ready today. That's the message that he's given. Knowing that the end will come. Isn't that the the encouragement to us? The suffering and sorrows and challenges that we go on in this, through in this life, and especially those who are persecuted from, uh, from the outside as well, it's to be encouraged to endure it, to not let your faith be shaken, to not grow weary, because God is going to bring judgment. He's going to come, and he'll deal with this, but stay focused, stay put, because many will fall away, he says. See, that's the key. Stay on track, be faithful. That's the message. Knowing... In the case of the apostles, knowing that his promise concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, the very den of those who had persecuted so harshly the Christians, even before the Romans did, knowing that destruction would come to them who were trying to flush out Christianity and that judgment was to come upon all their persecutors. That was what they were to be encouraged so that they would endure the sufferings, the trials, the oppression, the persecution, knowing that the end will come and God will bring judgment and he will wrench that temple down to ashes in due time. They must stand fast and endure all things, not wavering in their faith, recognizing that while they will suffer greatly along the way, and they did, the Lord would come in judgment in due time. That's the message of the coming of the Son of Man. He would come in judgment on the city that had persecuted his apostles and his early church. And he would level that temple and level that city and the gospel would spread to the whole world. And Rome would be hit ultimately as well in the end. And nothing would hinder the kingdom of God from spreading. That's the message. And so he concludes verse 13 with these words. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. To be sure, some would fall away. Again, if you read Josephus, it's hard to fathom what you read in the wars of the Jewish wars with the Romans. What happened? And I'm not talking about even the harshness of the Romans. Yes, they were harsh, but the Jews themselves... The corruption amongst them, they divided up into factions and they warred against each other. It was horrible what they did. And you read the details about some of the things that happened with women eating their own children. It was horrific. Some would fall away. Some would compromise. The coming sufferings and persecutions would set apart those who were genuinely converted from those who were not. Doesn't persecution have a way of doing that? Persecution has a way of showing who the real Christians are. So you could be a part of this church, baptized, taking the Lord's Supper here every Sunday, and still be a false convert. And you may not even realize it, but when the persecution comes and your life is on the line, that's when the dividing line is drawn. When the trials intensify, that's when the true seeds in fertile soil are seen as distinctive from those who are in rocky soil or those getting wrapped up by thorns. Such events, in this case, would ultimately lead 
to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and her temple. These would follow on the heels of the great persecution that would come against Christians following the ascension of Christ. The Christians were persecuted by the Jews first. And then later on, especially during the time of Nero, after three quarters of Rome was burnt, and to, get, to, to be able to convince his people that he wasn't the one involved with that as he tried to rebuild it after his own desires, what did he do? He blamed it on the Christians, and from that point on, I think it was 57 on, he began to persecute the Romans, persecuted the Christians in terrible and horrific ways as well. Well, having given this warning and exhortation then, telling his disciples the kinds of things that will take place first, prior to the end, the Lord then moves on to answer the second question, providing a key sign that would indicate when the destruction of Jerusalem and of the old covenant era would ultimately come to an end. He's going to give them now that sign. He's going to answer that question. First, he says, don't be deceived by these kinds of things. These things will happen first and it will lead into it. But then he's going to say, well, here's what you need to look for. Here's the answer to your question. Verses 14 and following. Notice verse 14. But when you see, again, who is he speaking to? 21st century Christians? <laughs> but when you see the first sign of the coming destruction, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. The reader would understand that. And we'll see why in a moment. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. All this talk about end times today in our day and age, and I'm still wondering when people are going to uh, they're gonna, when they look for this abomination of desolations that's going to take place after the temple is allegedly rebuilt and all this, what mountains are they going to flee to? It's just a complete distortion of what's given here. This happened in their day. In Matthew's account, Matthew adds the words when he talks about the abomination of desolation. He says, spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So he gives us a nice clue to doesn't he? Spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And so what then is this abomination of desolation that ought not to be at the temple? Well, we have a good clue there from Daniel. We have two good clues there from Daniel. Because Daniel speaks twice of an abomination of desolation being set up at the temple. He speaks of two different occasions where that would happen. First, he refers to the time when the Seleucid king... Remember during the intertestamental period, you had the Seleucid kings up north in Syria and you had the Ptolemies down south in Egypt warring against each other. And guess what was the middle playing ground of the war? The playground was Jerusalem. Whoever would win out of the two there would take Jerusalem. And so the Jews were constantly in the middle of this battle. Well, when the Seleucid king from the north, when he had come down, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. You can read about him and the horrible things he did. Um, he had captured Jerusalem in 168 B.C. And soon after he captured Jerusalem, you know what he did? He built a statue of Jupiter Olympus of Zeus in the most holiest part of the temple. And he offered pig sacrifices on the altars of the temple and took the, the, the juices from that and the blood and threw it all over the temple. He defiled the temple so badly that for three and a half years they stopped doing all, kind, all of the temple services. They stopped it. That was the abomination of desolation for that day. But there was a second abomination that Daniel also speaks about prophetically of another abomination of desolation that would take place at a later time during the Roman Empire, which the Lord here refers to as a sign of the imminent destruction of the temple. 
So Daniel actually spoke about what would happen in A.D. 70 as another abomination of desolation that would be raised up. And Jesus is addressing that. And that's why he says, let the reader understand. And you have the picture of what happened with the Seleucids back in 158 B.C. You have a picture to direct you to understand what is meant by that. The abomination, that is, this evident defilement of the temple, this abomination, would be a sign of its coming desolation. In the case of that which was set up by Antiochus Epiphanes, the temple ultimately, after three and a half years, however, it stopped all of its functioning. It would be restored and cleansed by the success of the Maccabees. If you haven't read about the Maccabees and their revolt, it's very helpful. They wound up three and a half years later actually cleansing the temple. And they got it up and running again. But it stopped for a time. It desolated for a time. But in this case, it would be the end of the temple and the concluding sign of the seal of the old covenant. There would be no rebuilding. It would be it. Needless to say, this sign served the Christians well. Because when the Romans later surrounded and laid siege to Jerusalem in AD 67, they saw the presence of the armies, the Christians saw the presence of the Roman armies carrying their standards with eagles on them that they worshipped as they surrounded the city and they offered sacrifices to their standard. And later on in AD 70, they went into the temple with their standards. Albeit it was burned down, but they went there. Well, the Christians in AD 67 saw that as the beginning of the fulfillment of this sign. And so what did the Christian do in AD 67? They followed the Lord's command here given to the disciples. They fled Judea and they crossed over the Jordan River and they remained in the mountains of Pella until after the desolation of Jerusalem and their temple had taken place. So for three and a half years, the Christians fled. They left when all of the other destruction was taking place in Judea and ultimately Judea, uh, Jerusalem in AD 70. They were safe on the other side of the Jordan, living in caves and on mountains because they looked for the sign. That the Lord had given them here in this text. It was their sign. In Luke's parallel account. Luke chapter 21 verse 20. We also read these words. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Then know that it's desolation. Has come near. Same word desolation. When you see it surrounded by armies. And it's interesting. I don't have time to get into it. What happened. Because when they were surrounded. There was one chance. Because the failure of the, of the general was trying to come in. He pulled out at the last minute. And nobody knows why. He could have taken the city at that moment. Other than we know God did in his providence. But it enabled the Christians to get out and see that sign. Later on the Romans continued their siege. You weren't getting out of the city. It was too late. That siege lasted three and a half years. Culminating in the final destruction of the temple in AD 70. And once the siege was set in place... It became virtually impossible to leave the city. That's why you left when they surrounded the city from the beginning, as Jesus had said, because you couldn't leave later on. Because there were three factions within Jerusalem that were warring against each other in the city. What destroyed Jerusalem wasn't just the Romans. It were the Jews. Within the city, you had three factions. Some were hiding up in the temple. Others were in the main square area. And others were in another portion of, the, of, of where the temple is. Uh, and they warred against each other inside. And so you couldn't flee the city at a certain point. See, if you left the city, they would have considered it treasonous. And you would have been put to death. You would have been seen as somebody who was fleeing to the Romans. And if you even got out somehow of the city and the Jews didn't kill you. 
the Romans who had surrounded the city would have captured you and perhaps even put you to death in some cases. That's what they did. In fact, they crucified Jews right around the city of Jerusalem as well to set an example. So urgent was this warning, this sign of his coming, that the Lord continued with these words in verses 15 to 23. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn, turn back to take his cloak. In other words, get right out. Don't waste any time. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Can you imagine fleeing in those conditions? Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulations as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being, that is no man, would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on God, I have told you all these things beforehand. Warnings to the people of that day. If you want to read about the utter horror and terror that permeated all of Judea from A.D. 67 to A.D. 70, three and a half years, read Josephus' eyewitness account in the Jewish wars. It is absolutely horrific. The wickedness, the bloodshed, nations against other nations, nations against Rome, Jews against Jews, Romans against Jews, other nations against Jews who live among them, because when they rebelled against the Romans and the other nations, they began to kill Jews because of what was going on with the Romans. The period of time between A.D. 64 and A.D. 70, in fact, I believe is the great tribulation that's being talked about in Scripture. That's, the, I believe, because it's never been that way since the beginning of time and never will be again. Now, there will be great tribulations, but I think the one talking about Scripture that's always talked about in a future sense, I think it was that period of time. Josephus describes the events. Let me read a couple of quotes from Josephus before we close. I did want to give you a taste, and this is just small. He says this, whereas the war, remember Josephus was a general in the war. He is an eyewitness account to these things happening. He is living during this time. Whereas the war which the Jews made with the Romans hath been the greatest of all those, not only that have been in our times, but in a manner of those that ever were heard of. Both of those wherein cities have fought against cities or nations against nations. It is therefore impossible to go distinctly over every instance of these men's iniquities. Talking about the iniquity of the Jews. How evil his own people were. I shall therefore speak my mind here at once briefly. That neither did any other city, did any other city ever suffer such miseries. Nor did any age ever breed a generation more fruitful in wickedness than this was from the beginning of the world. Finally, they brought in Hebrew nation, uh, the Hebrew nation into contempt that they might themselves appear comparatively less impious with regard to strangers. They confessed what was true, that they were the slaves, the scum, and the spurious and abortive offspring of our nation. That's the way they acted. While they overthrew the city themselves... And forced the Romans, whether they would or no, to gain a melancholy reputation by acting gloriously against them and did almost draw that fire upon the temple, which they seemed to think came too slowly, 
And indeed, when they saw that the temple burning from the upper city, they were neither troubled at it, nor did they shed any tears on that account. That's the Jews. That's these factions that were involved in Jerusalem. The Romans, and they're not innocent, but Titus, Vespasian's son, who actually took Jerusalem, Vespasian took all the other cities, they pled with the Jews many times to, to just to submit, just to back off. To preserve the temple. Even pled with them to leave the temple and to come out and let's fight in a different way. They didn't want to destroy the temple. But they didn't care. And so they ultimately they had to destroy the temple. Here's another quote. The noise also of those that were fighting was incessant both by day and by night. But the lamentations of those that mourned exceeded the other. Nor was there ever any occasion for them to leave off their lamentations because their calamities came perpetually one upon another. Although the deep consternation they were in prevented their outward wailing, but being constrained by their fear to conceal their inward passions, they were inwardly tormented without daring to open their lips in groans. Nor was any regard paid to those that were still alive by their relations. Nor was there any care taken of burial for those that were dead. The occasion of both, which was this, that everyone despaired of himself. For those that were not among the seditious, had no great desires of anything, as expecting for certain that they should very soon be destroyed. But for the seditious themselves, they fought against each other, while they trod upon the dead bodies as they lay heaped one upon another, and taking up a mad rage from those dead bodies that were under their feet became the fiercer thereupon. They moreover were still inventing somewhat or other that was pernicious against themselves, And when they had resolved upon anything, they executed it without mercy and omitted no method of torment or barbarity. Accordingly, the multitude of those that therein punished uh, perished exceeded all the destructions that either men or God ever brought upon the world. For to speak only of that what was publicly known, the Romans slew some of them. Some they carried captives and others they made a search for underground. And when they found where they were, they broke up the ground and slew all they met with. And just one more quote. And now as the city was engaged in a war on all sides, from these treacherous crowds of wicked men, the people of the city between them were like a great body torn in pieces. The aged men and the women were in such distress by their internal calamities that they wished for the Romans and earnestly hoped for an external war in order to their delivery from their domestical miseries. The citizens themselves were under a terrible consternation and fear, nor had they any opportunity of taking counsel and of changing their conduct, nor were there any hopes of coming to an agreement with their enemies, nor could such as had a mind flee away. For guards were set at all places, and the heads of the robbers, although they were seditious one against another in other respects, yet did they agree in killing those that were for peace with the Romans, or were suspected of an inclination to desert them. As their common enemies, they agreed in nothing but this, to kill those that were innocent. See, if you didn't leave when that sign came, you couldn't leave. You were stuck, and you had to go through the horror that they went through. Well, brethren, I want to conclude. To this point, we have considered some of the events that would take place prior to the destruction of the temple when one stone would not be left upon another. Next time, Lord willing, we will actually consider, we will consider the actual coming Son of Man, as defined by this text, this text, coming to destroy the temple. And again, all of this is right in keeping with the questions that the disciples had answered. 
To conclude this morning, let me leave you with one very relevant application that we can take from this text. If I left this out, I would do you a great disservice. I'd just be giving you information. In fact, it is in keeping with the Lord's primary exhortation to his disciples, which serves as a critical application for all times. Brethren, while we don't look ahead to the destruction of the temple and God's judgment upon rebellious Israel, we do anticipate the final coming and return of Christ. We talked about this last time. Where he will judge the whole world, not Israel anymore, but the whole world, and gather his church into his consummated kingdom. We can look back at AD 70 and the things that led up to it and have at least somewhat of a foreshadowing of what to expect in a worldwide sense. And that's the message for us. So far, the Lord's primary charge here in our text to the disciples is to not be deceived, but to stand fast, to persevere to the end. Things were going to get really hard. Persecutions would increase. And at times it could seem as if everything they had come to believe in was a mere mirage. Difficult trials and sufferings, especially those that come at the hands of God's enemies, can really shake your faith and lead you to begin to question God and everything you believe. We don't know that level of trial. Now, we've gone through trials and sufferings, and we go through them. But we don't know that level of trial. And we have to ask ourselves, are we ready for that? Well, will our faith endure that for a lengthy period of time? You see, as this opposition begins to wear on you, you can begin to wonder how such things could be permitted by God. You begin to say, well, enough. Is this even true? Is the gospel even true? Is God's love for me even genuine? How can he let a child of his go through this kind of thing for such a long period of time? But brethren, here it is. Such trials are what test the true metal of our faith and hope in Christ. They test the true metal of our faith and hope in Christ. It's very easy to say a prayer, to make a profession of faith, to go into some water, to take a supper, to gather on Sundays when there's really no opposition. What will you do when there are people with guns to your head saying deny the faith? And you have other folks who have already been shot or put to death. In other words, perseverance through any and all trials not only serves as an essential tool for your sanctification, and it does, but furthermore, it tells the true story of one's faith or lack thereof in Christ. There were people who departed from the faith in that day. Now, we would say they were never genuinely saved, but they looked faithful. You see some of them even in Scripture. Paul mentions um, some who have departed from the faith. People who he's saying are with him and he's commending earlier on. We're now saying he has departed from me. Demas has departed from me. Having love, having love for this present world. Trials weed out the tares from the wheat. And so brethren, we need to be ready to stand fast and to endure whatever providence brings our way. Being wholly confident that every single one of God's promises will meet us in due time. AD 70 came eventually and God brought judgment on those persecutors. And later on, the Romans and all those who persecute throughout all history call them antichrists or whatever you want. 
He, the judge of all the earth, will right all wrongs. The wicked will be judged, and the people of God will be brought into their eternal inheritance. We may be torn to shreds getting brought there, but we will get brought there. You may lose everything and then some on this side of the grave. And we have to be prepared for that possibility. But nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. And in the end, every wrong will be righted. Do you believe that? That said, if you're holding on to anything too tightly in this world, you will not make it. That's a tough concept to grasp in a country where we have enjoyed so much freedom and material prosperity. But brethren, we have to be prepared for whatever God brings our way. The road to glory is paved through many necessary trials and sorrows. It can be laced with confusion to the point where you can hardly see one step in front of you. But we have to stand securely and confidently on God's objective, unchanging word at all times. This does not change. This will come to pass. I was looking yesterday. I was catching up on downloading stuff onto my drives. I have all kinds of stuff in my emails. When I preach sermons, I download them and interactions. And I save all this stuff on file. But as I'm doing that, I'm going back in history and seeing things and relationships that I had from the past. Not here anymore. And it brings great sorrow. I said to my wife again, I said, this life is filled with sorrow, deep sorrow. But the scriptures tell us that it's exactly going to be the case. And we can't look back. We have to keep pressing forward until we cross the finish line. Because we know that what we will come to in heaven will be so great and glorious that it will make all of these sorrows seem like nothing compared to the prize. But we have to win the race. And the word of God, brethren, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. When we can see nothing else, we can see what it shows us. It is the only reliable, unshakable, solid foundation that we could stand upon. It is the only thing that we can say that while all flesh is grass and will fade and will deteriorate and break down, that the word of our God stands forever. All who desire to follow Christ, we're promised, will suffer with Christ. That's a promise. And all who expect to inherit the blessings must be willing to endure the sufferings that precede the blessings, being wholly confident that they are for our good and that they will spill into an eternal weight of glory. All of the disciples of our Lord, every last one of them, suffered great persecutions. Most of them were martyred, some of them in horrific ways. They could not endure such things unless they had solidly fixed their hope on the one who had the words of eternal life. When everybody else left Christ, these words are too hard. Eat your flesh, drink your blood. This is too hard. Only those who the Father calls come to you. This is too hard. And they all left him. And he goes to his apostles and says, Do you want to leave? Lord, where will we go? You have the words to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. <clears throat> and even seeing these things that were fulfilled in the first century, 
We know they speak to us. We know the relevance that they were for them. And we know we're not to get caught up in all kinds of end times madness and trying to define history and explain scripture by looking at a newspaper. Father, give us grace to be ready today. As if you were returning today, Lord Jesus. As if you were coming to bring judgment today. As if the day of the Lord in the end sense were to come today. Help us to be ready today. To be faithful to you. To not hold on to anything in this life with two hands. Give us grace to persevere. We confess as those were in the early times, Lord, that were it not for your grace, that even we, the elect, would be deceived. We are weak. We are feeble. We have a hard time handling difficulties. We have a hard time handling things that are discomforting and painful, especially for long periods of time. Lord, give us grace to stand firm to the end and to be confident that all that you do is for our good and your glory. And that in the end, you will right every wrong and bring us safely home into your kingdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.